Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. This is episode 85 of the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronas and host of the Petronas Podcast. And it is Sunday, June 4th, 2023. That's right. It is Sunday. We had an OPEC meeting this weekend, so I'm here to recap and fill you in on everything that's going on within um, the world of OPEC cuts and OPEC plus the Fed, jobs data, et cetera. Um, but this podcast is episode 85. It is the second half of the presentation that I gave to the uh, SPE uh, Society for Petroleum Engineers, their Permian Basin um, chapter in Midland, Texas in May. This is the second half. I will get into that. Um, it's a perfect follow-on for this OPEC meeting because I talk about OPEC and what's going on and everything going on with the war in Ukraine. The title of that presentation that I gave was Crude Volatility, from U.S. shale to ESG to the war in Europe. And it is the second half of that presentation. So I'll, I'll come back to that in a second. But today I want to recap that it is, it is Sunday, um, June 4th, 2023. And so some big things that have happened was that we do have a, um, you know, the closure to the debt ceiling saga. We have solved that, um, has been passed. Biden and McCarthy came to a deal that was passed. Everybody seems to be playing this really quietly. Um, and, you know, some Republicans are unhappy. Some Democrats are unhappy. It does seem like the Biden administration is playing this pretty close to their chest. Um, Joe Manchin seemed to push through the uh, Mountain Valley pipeline. Who knows if that will actually get built? But uh, that seems to be in there. Um, and then there's another big thing. And I think this is pretty big for inflation. And that is the student loans, student loan repayment requiring that student loans have to be repaid within the next two months. So actually, if that if that comes fruition, if we if student loans have to be start having to be repaid within the next two months, that is a pretty significant impact to the economy. And the reason why is that students have not paid back loans in over in three years now, since um, COVID to now. So you have some some payments of several hundred dollars, some payments of a couple hundred dollars, some payments of a thousand dollars a month that haven't been paid back. That means all that money is getting is going into the economy. That is inflationary. So if you take that out and those payments have to be made, yes, that does make people's lives tighter, but that does uh, that is deflationary in the economy. So that could help on the inflationary side. We'll come back to that. Um, but big news this weekend, and this has impacted oil prices, is the OPEC meeting. And if you've read any articles from Financial Times or Wall Street Journal or listened to the market that is uh, the Asian Open that's just happening, um, there, it's a pretty mixed bag. Now, oil prices have come up. We saw them um, before the market opened. Oil prices, WTI was around 71 bucks. It did not respond incredibly positively. But then now that uh, the Asian markets are open, we're seeing 73.63 for WTI. Again, this is as of Sunday evening, June 4th. Um, Brent is 78.04. So they're definitely, the Saudis wanted to bring this uh, oil prices closer to $80 a barrel. So they're definitely getting there. Henry Hub, we are still getting seen absolutely smashed at 221. And really the big story though, to watch and look at the is, is Europe and Dutch TTF gas prices, dollars per MMBTU, Dutch TTF in Europe is well under eight bucks at 746. That is just incredible considering where we were um, not even a year ago. Um, really, really incredible. And, and he, I think it, we need to put some humility to this of, of where people thought this was going and where we're at right now. Um, and we will come back to where U.S. production is because it's incredibly high um, and does factor into this fact that this wasn't mentioned in OPEC Plus is really uh, is very interesting. Um, that being said, and we're, we'll get into this, the jobs data that we've had in the U.S. and the yields, I'll come back to that. But um, we are seeing the 10-year yield at 3.69%. Um, we're seeing the 30-year mortgage, if you saw on Friday, it has dipped below um, it has dipped below 7% for the, a 30-year mortgage. And we're seeing the two-year-old at around 450. Now, lots are going on with the jobs data, but let's go back to the OPEC meeting. So we had this meeting over the weekend. If you were following it Saturday, there wasn't any conclusion. There were a lot of meetings back and forth, lots of people in Vienna going from hotel suite to hotel suite. Um, the Saudis didn't seem to have control of this the way they have had in the past. So this is not a meeting where everyone was super congratulatory and saying, wow, we rah, rah, we have this great continuity with an OPEC plus. And that is because one, the Russians have just kept churning out production like crazy. So neither the Saudis nor the Russians have decreased production as of data that we can see, right? As of the latest data from, if you're looking at the OPEC um, bulletin, if you're looking at that document from May, um, you're seeing the Saudis at 10.5 million barrels a day production. That's actually a 100,000 barrel day increase from the previous month. So for March, they were, or in April, they were at 10.5 million barrels a day production. March, they were 10.4. So they actually, and uh, they actually increased it month over, month 
over month um, in May. And then same thing for Russia is that their March production was up as well, about 11.4 million barrels per day um, around that level. So we haven't seen any meaningful declines. Um, supposedly in May, we've seen those declines, but that we, you would have thought that if, if both the, uh, if the demand story had held up and even flatlined and you were decreasing production that you definitely would have seen prices tick up a little bit. And now that takes time to work through the system with inventories and everything, but we're not, we haven't seen that yet. So of course, the fact that the Saudis are even trying to, we, we knew going into this meeting and where, where prices were and that they'd really softened materially from their announced cuts in April. So when we had those announced cuts in April of 2 million barrels per day on top of the, um, on top of the previous cuts that they had announced last fall, um, markets rallied, right? Very short term, but we went from, you know, $69 WTI with the bank banking crisis stuff in March to 83 bucks a WTI, which really came off. I mean, I was advising everyone and I'm sure folks listening to this podcast um, would agree with me is that, I mean, $83, you should be hedging right there or if you can hedge it because then we just had a downward decline. And now we're, now we're at 76 or 73 bucks and maybe we'll come up a little more, but when you're cutting when you're cutting like this and you're trying to jolt the market, you're doing that in a, it, it, it isn't what you want from an oil price standpoint. It never really ends well for oil prices. And it's not, this isn't demand driven and demand driven oil price moves higher are what you want to see both for a healthy economy and healthy oil prices. And typically when you see this behavior, it's erratic and it doesn't go well. And, and OPEC's not, never, never done a really good job in handling and managing this um, to, in, to a great degree. So when we have this, uh, so on top of that, if you all the meetings that they were having over the weekend, finally on Sunday, I guess this went late into last night, and then finally today, um, early in during their morning on Sunday morning in Europe, they came to an agreement, and there was some discourse, uh, some discontinuity between the group because. If you're looking at the OPEC figures, um, the latest OPEC numbers, you'll see that you know Nigeria and some Angola and some African countries, their production's been down. Now that's because they have not reinvested in it well, and they were hit by COVID. And these are African countries that are frankly poorly run oil industries, poorly run oil management, lots of corruption, lots of theft, etc. So they want their quotas increased. Now the United or they they want to keep their quotas up, but there's pressure to decrease them because they haven't complied, right? They haven't been able to even keep up the output that they said. United Arab Emirates wants to increase their quota because they have been investing. So to get everyone on board, essentially, they did increase the UAE's quotas. They um, And they basically said every for Africa, you we're going to maybe cut you next year, going into the next year. So if you read those documents, and I need to reread them again, but there's a, the, the stated document online and then the attached document, they make no sense. It's, it's OPEC math, as it always is. And they show this big cut. You'll notice for this one document, they show a huge cut at nine, nine uh, like 5 million barrels a day and change for, um, for Russia. Now, Russia's producing over 11 million barrels per day. So that's going to be a pretty substantial cut. And they don't show the same for Saudi Arabia. Um, and Saudi Arabia right now is producing, as of the latest OPEC figures, and maybe that's a m- month delayed, but that was 10.5 million barrels per day. Then to sweeten the deal, in which they call a, the Saudis call it a sweetener, um, which is re- the, really the only thing that was going to change the market and, and move prices higher, and they call it a lollipop. Um, the the um, Saudis said they would do a personal voluntary cut of 1 million barrels per day. Now, I think that's important to think about because that shows a little bit of desperation on the Saudis' part. Is that they are really um, one? It shows that they're serious about moving oil prices. Um, they've they had some commentary within Reuters and some other some other news agencies last week with regards to spooking short sellers. Um, but you have to realize that folks in the market, yes, there's a lot of algorithmic trading and there's a lot of um, and sh- short selling and thin, thinly traded volumes, which we've talked about before. I talk about in every presentation. That's really problematic for oil. The anti-oil and gas movement has really led people out of oil and probably because banks and stuff and traders have been caught on the wrong side. So you just have less folks trading oil. Therefore, when you have less volumes being traded, you have heightened volatility. Now, the Saudis seem to take that seriously and that they want to prop up oil prices, but it also means they are seri- they're seeing the market, right? We have not seen the demand growth out of China. We are not seeing it. And if you actually look at the International Ag- Energy Agency and OPEC, their forecast for the back half of this year and the rise in demand is all led by China. So that Chinese growth has to really materialize. And we're not seeing that in the data. The 
almost all the stock market gains from the from Hong Kong and China have been completely washed out this year. The 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 rise that we had in the growth after the zero COVID band-aid was lifted or ripped off, we haven't seen it. So we see consumer spending, um, but we see the economy acting really sluggish. And that's where you see this impacts commodities. You're seeing this in zinc, you're seeing it in copper, you're seeing it in oil. So very, very serious. China's a whole nother podcast, which we really need to get into because there, there really is so much happening there. But the last thing I'll say about the Saudis is that they didn't mention you a shale and they're clearly not paying attention to it because if you've seen the latest figures out of the EIA for monthly production figures, again, with a two month lag. So we're in, um, this is June. So this is, we're looking at April data. Um, that production figure for the U S is 12.6 million barrels per day, over 12.6 million barrels per day, gross withdrawals of natural gas, like total natural gas getting pulled out of the ground, not necessarily marketed is over 123 BCF a day, almost 124 BCF a day. That is monstrous. So we are talking about incredible growth out of the Permian, especially in New Mexico. Everybody's saying every month that's going to stall. We're going to see that flat line. We're almost at 1.9 million barrels per day of production just out of New Mexico alone. And we're seeing, we saw Texas production growth increase as well. So, you know, the rock is still giving, and I really encourage people to think about this in the context of this is a very uh, higher inflationary environment. Yes, folks need to increase output to compensate for that. But this is with, you know, we still have tightness in the market for labor. We still have inflation in the oil sector and we are dropping, you know, incrementally. There's not massive drops in rigs, but we're incrementally dropping rigs. And that means that there's a couple consequences to that, right? That means that the oil side has a little more rig availability. There's a little more flexibility, especially with gas prices declining. And, and if you're seeing rigs drop or frack fleets drop on the gas side, they can move over into the oil side, um, which means there's a little bit, uh, there, there's a little more wiggle room on the oil side. But the point I'm making is a couple months ago, we're doing this all with a with we, we have not risen to the rig count we've had when we were at 13 million barrels per day. So we are clawing back the we're we're clawing back to 13 million barrels per day, and that was not mentioned within this OPEC plus meeting. So this is a bit of a gift and has been um, for shale in that this is keeping prices elevated. We're well north of $70 a barrel now, um, and this is obviously probably not what the Biden administration wants to see uh, cuts and and oil prices going higher because they want to see them lower. If they want to see them lower, they really need to start um, they really need to start incentivizing. Um, oil and gas companies to actually in, uh, increase output for the long term from a stable regulatory market perspective. But that's a whole nother podcast as well. So um, that's the OPEC, OPEC plus cuts. Uh, keep watching oil prices. This is going to continue to evolve. I would expect them to potentially rise a few bucks more and then come back down. You would have to see substantial positive economic data somewhere in the world, which we don't have. These are not demand-driven growth uh, uh, figures. Uh, we're not. If You're not seeing prices... Uh, driving up on demand-driven growth. That's not good, especially when they're short-term and they're snappy. Um, they usually erode and fall back down. We, we saw that from 2018 to now, um, that case in point. So um, that being said, that's OPEC plus cuts. Now, the student loan, we, we have seen the debt ceiling debate uh, relatively closed. There's still more talk about what this means in two years from now when it comes back up. But right now it's relatively closed. And uh, Biden had a speech. I didn't actually, I have not listened to it yet. Um, but he gave a speech and um, it was said to be pretty political that it was kind of his opening speech for campaigning again. I will say, and I, I think I need to say it, is that um, I'm a little frustrated that no one in the media, whether it's CNBC or Bloomberg or anyone, is really being honest about um whether or not this man is, is healthy enough to run. Um, he's a, this is a really old man. And, and it's not just age, but it's his capacity. And if you listen to him speak, um, he just doesn't seem like he has the stamina. So I will be shocked to see, you know, it, I will be shocked to see how, you know, him really staying long, long in, for the game, especially when it comes to debates and politics and the intensity of running another campaign. Um, so that's a, that's a separate uh, a separate podcast as well and, and very political, which I don't want to really get into right now. Um, but the jobs data, and I'll close on this before giving you a recap of what this presentation is that I'll be getting to. But the jobs data, and this is why you're going to see uh, lots of talk about the Fed and what the Fed's going to do last week. And what you what you saw was interest rates were rising on the back of the volatility from the debt ceiling thing um, for, for not having a deal on the debt ceiling. Once the deal got solved, then where were interest rates going to go? In between all of that, and I've I talked about this in last week's intro, was that in between all that, interest rates were expected interest rates were expected to go up because inflation is sticky, and there was more of a, a, a um, the market coming together and sort of realizing, hey, we're probably going to have to raise rates. And the Fed, 
you know, everybody says they've been really clear, but I don't think they have because they have a bunch of different messages going out there. They have certain, they have certain fed guys that are more hawkish that are saying we might have to raise rates and other guys saying we're not. So whether or not now there's a big question mark in June this month, are they going to not have a meeting? Are they going to, and, and nothing happens, which means that would be basically pause. Are they going to have a pause and be very hawkish about it? Or are they going to have a, um, are they going to, um, do have a pause and be dovish about it. Are they going to signal another rate and what rate increase? And what we've seen from these, uh, the fed talks and everything is that we may have a pause in June, but then we'll have a fed rate hike the next month. That really doesn't make a lot of sense. You're probably not going to get enough data within the economy within a month to say concretely um, and succinctly that, Hey, this is where we're at on the trajectory. And that sticky and persistent inflation is really eroding the lower income consumer. And we're actually, we're seeing that on the top end. You're definitely seeing slowing in spending by the highest end on, on big luxury stuff. And you're also seeing a slowing and the lower end. If you're looking at Dollar Tree or Dollar General, um, those one, you're seeing uh, people making north of $100,000 spending at these stores. And you're also seeing weakness in these stores. That I'm not saying the $100,000 earner is, is the one showing weakness, but everyone else shopping at that store, that, that is really problematic. And that means that inflation is eating into their day-to-day -day spending and that this fiscal lag from the guys in the bottom end is, there's, we don't have any, the money is, is gone. And people are spending on their credit cards, they're spending on buy now, pay later, they're having increasing credit card debt, and um, they just don't have the money. So while everyone in folks on the stock market keep talking about this, like it's an interest rate problem. And that if we lower interest rates, this will make it better. This is an inflationary problem. And if you don't keep interest rates elevated, you're going to continue to have the inflation. Double-edged sword, big problem. Inflation is here to, it's not going away tomorrow. And you're going to have to increase rates and keep them there to work on it. So that's really serious. Now the jobs data that came out um, was over 300,000 jobs. So a pretty resilient jobs data figure. And what the market initially did was say, oh, we're going to have to increase rates. And then it pulled that back and said, oh, no, this is good. Because while the jobs, while we added over 300,000 jobs um, for the month, the unemployment figure actually ticked up. So it went from 3.4% to 3.7%. We kind of know this the percentage figure doesn't matter as much, um, but it does when it's when when you can say 3.4 to 3.7. That helps with the Fed because they can make a case, hey, maybe we don't have to raise rates. Um, also, the participation rate, if I remember this correctly from when it's on TV, was 62.6%, which was the same as the month before. So we're not seeing increase in participation rate. And then the other figure was that the wage salaries actually ticked down a slight amount um, uh, from month over month. So that's another positive that the Fed could lean on and say, hey, wage, wages are going down. I don't think that's across the board. And the problem is, is that if they're sticky, if they just stay there or hang there, just like grocery prices or whatever, that's, uh, that, that's sticky and persistent inflation. I would say that Josh Brown on CNBC, he's a guy I, I really like hearing him speak because he usually puts, uh, he, he talked about NVIDIA this week, but he also puts this, this clarity to the market and usually calls out a lot of BS. And, you know, he said uh, something a couple weeks ago and he said, we've never been here before. And he said that to the group because he was saying, hey, you know, we've all been trading and we all think we're really good and everything. We've been here. I mean, he's got to be in his 40s. But he was saying we've never been here before and that we've never been in a stagflation environment. We've never traded in a stagflation environment. And I think that's really important to think about the stock market and the behavior of the stock market and thinking about what stagflation means. And we're basically, I mean, the risk of stagflation is extremely high and it's going to be very hard for stocks to sort of navigate that. And so I think if you think back, where, where, what has the stock market been doing and how has it performed? All of the gains have been basically in 15 tech stocks. And tech stocks shouldn't be outperforming because of Fed rate hikes, but they are because of this AI craziness right now. And that's a whole nother separate podcast, which I'll get into, and I need to have a guest to talk about this. But NVIDIA had this massive jump up. It hit the trillion dollar level. Um, it, I mean, just if you just look at NVIDIA's share price from the beginning of this year to now, we're up over over 400 bucks and then it has come down back a little bit. Josh Brown had been in there in the very beginning, several years ago, like I think 2006. He's recently pulled some off the table just because of the gains. But I think, you know, yes, AI is real. I mean, algorithmic trading is AI. Look at autos, look at the industry. You know, most businesses have used some level of AI. So when we, we think about stocks and we think about AI being put on them. We have to be careful about understanding we've had artificial intelligence in the game for a while now chat gpt is new but honestly chat gpt is a is, is pulling everything on the internet and, and and giving it back to you. And there, there are definitely applications for that. Um, I think writing simple things and doing stuff. I haven't actually played with it, but I think we have to be very careful about this AI bubble as well. Not to say that these artificial intelligence won't be with us for a long time and, and recreate and be formed, but these companies that are going bananas right now, not necessarily NVIDIA, but all the smaller ones and the others that are propping everything up, they may not... The, the, 
easily this is a bubble, whether it pops six months from now or pops three years from now, um, is, is it looks a lot like the dot-com bubble. So just be careful with that. Um, and what the stock market's doing and what that's that, how that's very, very different from what oil prices are telling you, which is two very, very different stories. Okay. With all that um, and that market recap, I know that's a lot in a little bit. I was trying to cram that in there because it is Sunday um, and I'm pumped for you guys to take a listen to this. But with all that, the second half of this presentation, and I broke this up into two, the second half of this presentation fits in really well to what we were just talking about with OPEC. This is about inflation, the economy, the Fed, interest rates, um, oil demand, housing, debt, you name it, I get into it. And I also get into OPEC, um, cutting into how they're cutting into re recession, how we have a deteriorating market. Um, and you know, I, I talk about throughout this presentation, I've talked about what if you're a bull, what are what are the things that that are behind the bull case and what are the things behind the bear case for oil prices? Um, and we talk about Russia, China. We talk about the war in Ukraine and war fatigue um, one year on. And we talk about the need for education in this space and, and what folks need to be doing, especially in oil and gas, about educating folks. And then there's a great Q&A that follows that I included in this as well. So really hope you guys enjoy it. Um, and I, I think we do have to appreciate just where we're at where we're at for that deteriorating market in this like OPEC plus cuts that we're going into. And the reason I, I just point that at the end to think about that, folks, is that we do have a group think in this business. And if you listen to the previous podcast, I bring that up. But we tend to be very bullish. I'm, I've been really shocked at how bullish this industry has been despite oil prices coming down or sort of eroding. And yet we still have this very sort of bullish thesis. And yes, there are things in geopolitics. There are lots of things that can and, and a lower strategic petroleum reserve and a lot of things that can support that bullish thesis. But they're not demand driven and they're not economic growth driven. And those mean they're more problematic and they're more subject to erratic price behavior and lots of volatility, which people can get caught on the other side of. So um, with that, I hope you guys uh, really enjoy this podcast. Uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Bye. Okay, switching gears. Now we're going to go to the economy. This is First, First Republic. So if you followed First Republic or any of the, if you've seen anything on the news at all with this banking crisis, um, First Republic you probably hadn't heard of it until a couple weeks ago. Um, this was not that long ago when it had a peak share price, and now it's a couple bucks. Last week, I gave a presentation in Colorado. I, it was like five bucks, and I told them, hey, next week it'll probably be one and change, and it is one and change. Um, so w they, came out, um, they came out on April 24th, and they said that their deposits had come down considerably, so a bunch of money had flowed out, and they went into the bigger banks. This is a serious issue because the, the Fed basically, or um, they came into the Silicon Valley Bank, they saved them. We had Credit Suisse and you um, get saved as well in, um, in Switzerland. So we've had these big bank saviors. Um, these were bailouts. They don't want to call them bailouts. But then Janet Yellen says, hey, we're not going to bail out the small guys. We'll bail out the, the FDIC insured deposits, but we won't necessarily bail out every company. Well, they just they said before that they might bail out every deposit everywhere. So it gets really confusing. So money has just flowed out of these banks like crazy. Um, and this exposure, part of it is because of the serious COVID knock-on effects of not everybody's going back to work full-time. Real estate, you know, commercial real estate office buildings are not full. That's a component to this. But the, the reality is that commercial real estate and the smaller banks are tied together. And so the exposure, just this is from a JP Morgan report again, which is really good. And I just put this in a quote. But the small banks hold 4.4 times more exposure to U.S. Um, the, of the commercial real estate loans than their larger peers. And that's a big deal. So when, if, you, if you stay up late at night and you listen to the banks talk on Bloomberg or CNBC, the reason Deutsche Bank came out at one in the morning the other night um, and said, hey, you know, we're great because we don't have this exposure to commercial real estate, and they don't. So this is the kind of the shoe to drop, and this, will, this could really pull down the economy. Um, so as, as bullish as we can be on, on oil prices, with the, with the economy slows, oil's coming with it. Um, housing units, another thing to pay attention to is just where these peaks are. So um, lots of people talk about housing. Um, I've in previous podcasts, I've talked about a lot, a lot of presentations, I get into it. I don't have enough time here. But I just put this chart up because I found it, I found the data and found it nerdy is that's total housing units under construction. This is apartments in purple and single family houses in red. And the reason I put this is that this is 2006 that we peaked for, um, and again, that you guys know that line, that was the housing crisis, but you know, we didn't even know that the housing crisis was a housing crisis until 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed. So it is a leading indicator, and there it is right there. So I would guess that we're already there. Um, and the apartments is a different story, um, but it lags um, a little bit, so it's 2008. So we're probably a year out from you know, hell breaking loose. Um, 
So the Fed is going to go tomorrow. The Fed's going to talk tomorrow. You know, the Fed doesn't know what the Fed's going to do. The market doesn't know what the Fed's going to do. That's opposite job of what the Fed's supposed to do. The Fed is literally supposed to get on TV and say, hey, this is where we're taking interest rates are going up, interest rates are going down, we're sticking to this, and then the market just follows suit. But the Fed doesn't have that gumption. Jerome Powell did not look very secure last time he spoke. He looked pretty insecure. He looked kind of grumpy, I and mean, he's got this banking crisis going on. But his job is to not is to literally just steer the course. So he's got a big problem because everybody's worried about this banking crisis. The problem is, is that a lot of rich people got bailed out in the Silicon Valley bailout. Um, everyone in this room, whether you're rich or poor, um, is impacted by high inflation. Every single person, every single business is impacted by inflation. It is a huge deal. Um, and then, oh, today you also had uh, you also had the talk of our our <clears throat> the, our U.S. you know the U.S. debt limit that we have to increase it. And Janet Yellen came out and said that we're going to run out of money in June, not July. So there's some impetus on that that is worrying the markets. Um, but the point is this document, actually, the Fed minutes that came out from the previous month, this mentions recession for the first time. And so the problem is when you say, and they said the only reason they didn't raise rates 50 basis points. So we're talking about not raising rates now or raising it 25 basis points, when in March we were going to raise them 50 basis points because inflation was so bad. Nothing has changed on inflation, except now we have a, a banking crisis, which apparently is not a banking crisis, so we don't need to worry about it. Um, or we do, because they mention it 34 times, and it's a big deal. So they, they kind of want their cake, and they want to eat it too. The reality is they're not going to be able to navigate this nearly as well as they think, and um, we're going, the economy is going to take a hit. Unemployment has to go up. That's how recessions work. Um, if you want to know about oil demand, um, there's a few things. Costco, you know, people just are not buying stuff. And you can see this, any anecdotal evidence of, you know, freight shipping. Um, I do think there's some knock-on positive effects literally from this on trucks for the oil and gas industry. And it is that if you had trouble hiring truck drivers, I don't know if you're going to have as much trouble hiring them coming in the, in the next six months or so because people are losing their jobs in terms of moving stuff. Amazon drivers, FedEx drivers, um, people that are just moving stuff are losing their jobs. This is truck ton for hire contract truck tonnage index way down. This article in the Wall Street Journal was fantastic. Um, it is worth a read if you're thinking about diesel demand and, and business is that the, that's way down. So people are not buying stuff. Costco had their first monthly de first decline in sales, you know, the big box store since uh, April 2020. They had that last month because people just aren't buying discretionary items. We've heard this from Target and Walmart for last several quarters. Delta Airlines um, talked in their previous quarter or recently, they talked about cargo shipments being down. And something we don't realize is that during COVID, one of the big saviors for the airline companies was cargo shipments. They were moving a lot of crap back and forth that we were all buying at home. And um, that's declined, which means we're not buying as much crap. Also means that the airlines, there's a bunch of shorts on the airlines. And you would think, gosh, if you've flown lately, the airlines are doing great. I mean, holy crap, it's $1,000 to go to DC from Denver on an economy ticket. Um, they're not actually doing that great. And the shorts on the airlines are telling you that some people are betting against, the, they're betting for a recession. Because when you have a recession and people lose money and jobs, they're not going to spend $1,000 going to Denver to DC in an economy ticket. Um, container imports are also 20-foot equivalent. Basically, this is the red line. It's down for 2023. We are buying less goods, partly because they're very expensive, partly because interest rates are higher, um, lots of different reasons. And everyone wants to say that the reason the economy is slowing is because the Fed is tightened. Uh, the economy is also slowing because prices are really high for stuff and people aren't buying that stuff anymore because it's really expensive. And they're spending all the money that they make on food and fuel. So I'm nearing toward my mark of which I should be taking questions. However, I just, do you want me to keep going or do you want me to, do you want me to stop? Um, Okay. Okay. So, um, so that was good. I like that answer. Um, okay. So, oil demand declines in a recession. So, we won't spend time on this. This is the red line. This is oil demand. So, you should be asking yourself at this point in the presentation, so where are we at for oil demand? Are we declining? Not really. We're, we've sort of hang, hung in there. I mean, this was our decline during COVID. We had a little blip here and we've come back. But what happens in a recession it's not, it's jet fuel and it's diesel. It's not gasoline demand. Nobody stops driving. We don't stop eating. We don't stop going out to eat. You know, we don't all lose our minds and just stay at home like COVID. That, that's not a recession. That was a shut-in. That's not what's going to happen. So it's diesel demand. We are seeing some weakness. So this is current diesel demand. And you can see that it has come off a little bit. We've seen some softness here. And I, I think that's largely from the stuff I was just showing you and talking about is trucking, is FedEx, is everything. Um, and diesel is your biggest indicator of your economy. So it is something to watch. This was diesel demand in the recession in 2008. So it really did come off. Um, and that's, that's just 
that's people not you know building houses that's construction that's everything um, so I would say we're, we're sort of leading into that a little bit um, inflation unemployment interest rates uh, oil prices looks really messy um, I promise you it, it makes sense I put a dotted line here that's $75 oil a dotted line here that's 2% inflation um, oil prices do tend to track with with inflation as of late but you can see here in the mid 2000s they didn't right so we can have low inflation and high oil prices. Right now we have high inflation and high oil prices, which is not a good recipe. Um, but the real takeaway is that unemployment lags. All, lags all day long. Um, this is your 80s. If you hear people talking on TV about the 70s and the 80s and the reason why we have to keep raising rates is because last time we didn't do it and then inflation got ahead of itself, that's actually what happened. So inflation, unemployment, Fed funds rate is in black is your interest rates. Um, May 1980, you had 15% inflation. January 1981, interest rates are jacked up to 19.1%. It takes until November of 1982 for unemployment to go to 10.8%. It lags. Um, you know, Lehman Brothers collapsed in, the, in September of 2008. Unemployment peaked in 2010. I was looking for a job. I know it well. It peaked at 10%, over 10%. It was really, really painful. And we lost a few million barrel, a couple million barrels of oil demand in the U.S. alone. And two million barrels a day oil demand lost in the U.S. is 2% of oil demand globally. So it, it matters, um, even if it's a little bit. Your ISM manufacturing, um, PMI, and your PPI, those are just, I know those are convoluted numbers. But your ISM manufacturing index is an indicator for, for manufacturing. Your PPI is an inflation indicator that uh, is your producer price index. It, it does tell you a little bit about inflation, but actually tells you more just about the health of businesses in the economy. Both are very down. This, this is actually further, I think this was updated. This is below, I mean, it's, it's down to like, it, that was 2020, but it's where it was like a recessionary level. So both of them look pretty rough right now. There's no indicator that, there's no positive economic indicator out there right now, other than everyone telling you that the consumer is so damn resilient. And they are, the consumer is very, very, very resilient because we keep spending, which is causing inflation. US total inflation is 5%, it's come down. Um, U.S. core inflation, the stuff that the Fed has to watch, it's minus food and minus energy, um, is, is higher than core. Or your core inflation is higher than your regular inflation, 5.6%. This is a problem. This jaggedness and this pick back up is the problem, mean, meaning it's getting sticky, meaning the employment and people paying more, uh, labor, uh, sticky inflation, wages going up, big problem, which means you have a wage price spiral, which means in inflation gets embedded and it gets very sticky. Um, the only thing that's really driven down infl inflation overall is energy prices, is oil and gas prices coming down. That is the single biggest driver of inflation coming down. That doesn't mean that, and because everyone is still taking Ubers, Uber just had their earnings call this morning, because everybody's still taking their Ubers and they're still going out to eat and they're favoring going out to eat and they're favoring flying and destinations and stuff over buying stuff. Um, and I don't know if you look around in Denver, we had a boom like crazy, a housing boot where people are over COVID, they were renovating, everybody was buying, building kitchens and you know, every, you name it, they were building it. I don't see any of that going on right now. It's, it's really, really slowed. Um, and that's partly because interest rates are higher, but partly because it's already been built. Um, electricity prices have come down, but they're still very high. We're at 10.2% in inflation for electricity. Food is still 8.5%, that is massive. Shelter prices, that's purple, that has not come off at all. That's 8.2% in climbing. And services, less energy services, so wages, are 7.1%. It's not a good story. It is, it is a really bad story. And if the Fed does not raise rates, um, it, it's gonna be a problem because that inflation is gonna be stickier and you're gonna have less money in your pocket. UK inflation is still above 10%. German inflation is above 7%, also a big problem, even when gas prices have come down. Um, so when people tell me how good the consumer is doing, this is stuff you have to look at. This is U.S. household debt is 16.7 trillion. Um, we added we added a trillion dollars in 2021 alone. That is just massive, and that debt is largely in mortgages. And people always say, well, those mortgages are fine because everybody had 2.75 percent mortgages and 3 percent mortgages. That's great. I mean, I was able to refinance my house too, and it was wonderful. Except. If I lose my job and don't have a paycheck, it doesn't matter how low my mortgage rate is. So when people have double income and they got a million dollar house in Denver, 
that's still going to be a tough payment to make on your mortgage if somebody loses their job. And everybody bought these homes in the suburbs thinking they're never going to have to move again. And we all know, especially in this industry, you're going to have to move again. Um, so you have to be able to sell your house. And this is what happens in recessions and crises is that people lose their jobs and then you sell, sell their homes and they can't sell their homes. And then we have this cycle. So people thinking that housing is perfect. We just have to be careful with that because it's not perfect. Um, the younger borrowers, this is delinquency rates, that's the age range, this is 18 to 29. Delinquency rates for credit cards are going up. Younger borrowers are the ones that are being, becoming delinquent. Younger borrowers are the ones that have not had to pay back 300 to $400 billion of student loan debt in three years. When that comes through, that's going to be painful. Um, so that alone could really tip, you know, take, it would be helpful on the inflationary side. Um, we have a trillion dollars in auto loans. That is a lot, okay, because that, unlike a house, that doesn't come back to you. I mean, that's just a depreciating asset. So that's, and then we have, a, a, sorry, trillion dollars in credit card debt and over and uh, 1.6 trillion in auto loans. Big problem there. Um, and that's the savings rate. So I don't think the consumer's doing as good as they're still spending stuff, but that doesn't mean anything. Debt, um, global debt levels are huge. This is, uh, Chinese debt is massive. Big, big problem in China for a number of different reasons. Um, our employment data, we, we have very low unemployment. People just are not coming back to work. We still have a, a very a big dislocation in terms of the, the number of job opens, openings versus how many people are applying. It's still about two to one, two to one right now. Again, this is why the Fed will, will have to rate, do that 25 basis point hike tomorrow at the least. Um, and then I'm going to go through this really fast, if you'll bear with me, because this is the important stuff. Um, OPEC did their cut. Um, this was the previous meeting, so they were extending a cut and then adding on to it. Those cuts were, you know, you know uniquely, they were coming from basically Russia um, and Saudi Arabia, over 526,000 barrels a day. They were both cutting. That was the previous agreement, and then they come out and say they're cutting 2 million barrels a day. Now, they cut 2 million barrels a day. The market went up. We went to $83. We went from $69 a barrel WTI to $83 WTI. Now we're back to 72. So this hasn't fix the problem because there's a deteriorating market underneath it. This typically happens to OPEC. Go back in history, this, this is kind of what they do. Um, and so if you're cutting into recession, it tells you that you're cutting into recession. I mean, they're trying to prop it up. And they knew that China wasn't looking good. This is why they did this. Um, Russian production has just been remarkably resilient throughout this war. Everyone called for this production to come off a cliff, that Russia's going to tank. Sanctions haven't been as they just haven't done the trick. Russia is selling this crude oil to everyone who will take it at a discount. Um, China's funding the war, war in Ukraine. China's, the trade with China and Russia is massive. China's importing a lot of crude oil, two, over 2 million barrels a day. India's taking uh, nearly 2 million barrels a day. Italy's taking um, you know, 500,000 barrels a day when they want it. Um, so this production is 11.4 million barrels a day. They're projected, this is OPEC saying this, they're projected to come off. So I think the OPEC cut was pretty convenient because they know they're thinking that Russia's going to cut this production. Russia can. Russia could also say they're cutting the production and just give it to China. That would be convenient for China. Um, OPEC production is about 29 million barrels a day. Saudi Arabia is 10.4. So again, who's the largest global oil producer in the world? We are at 12.5. Um, Russia at 11 and change. And you know Saudi's at 10.4, which they're cutting. Um, the international rig count, if you if you got the bullish thesis, again, I, this is, I'm just throwing some, some cold water on it, is that this is the international rig count. Largely, that's us in the US. But I, like I said, we're not going to go back to where we were pre-COVID, nor is the world. And we're basically right there. So you know we're getting close. So the Saudis have increased production. That's just stacked up that way. Um, you're seeing increased output in Canada. You're seeing increased output in Brazil. Um, oil prices matter. This is Russian crude oil exports, India in yellow almost over 2 million barrels a day. Um, China, over 2 million barrels a day. Russian crude exports have been very resilient. Um, they're actually exporting more um, on, some on some levels than they were prior to the war in Ukraine. The discount is pretty significant. It's about, I mean, when eight, sorry, this was a couple of days ago, last week, 83 bucks. It was a, over a, a decent amount of discount. They were getting 62 bucks for Russian crude, except Russian crude, it's, uh, they have a very low break even. Um, it's, it's their break even for crude for their fiscal break even for their budget pre-war was like about $40 a barrel in the 40s. So they're able to weather these storms way better than people think. Um, the war is bad. It's, it certainly hit, impacted them. But this is a long haul game for Russia. Russia did not go into this war saying maybe they thought they would win it earlier, but they're not backing out anytime soon. So now you have a war that we're one year into this war. And there's ma major complications with that. Um, Russia 
is also sending crude to Saudi Arabia, or sorry, refined products like gas oil um, and things that Russia can, uh, the Saudis can burn instead of their own oil. So Saudi Arabia is buying cheap product from Russia at a discount, burning it for their power generation, and then exporting more of their crude oil. It's win-win. Everybody wins here. Saudi Arabia, Iran, Russia, China. Pay attention to those four because that's a really big deal. They're all really cozy right now, um, and uh, it, it just it's a it's a problem, problematic situation for the rest of the world. Um, that's one year into the war in Ukraine. That's what the map looked like. So this was uh, February 24th. Um, I don't know how many of you guys thought this, this war was going to happen. I can tell you most people did not. I was on a lot of calls. I was talking to a lot of people up until the day, telling clients, hey, do you think this is going to happen? And I would say, yes, I think this is going to happen. And they'd be like, I don't think this is going to happen. And I thought, OK, well, um, it did. And so because they lined up all those troops, and this is where we're at. So that was the first day. This is a year on. And it's entrenched. The point of this is it's a very entrenched war. This is a, probably a first pawn in a long game of a much longer war that Russia and China are thinking about. Um, and it was enabled, and this comes back to the energy transition stuff, and really important, because who's promoting the energy transition the most is Europe, um, and we're kind of following line. But can, this war was enabled by Russia, Russia's, um, imp by Europe, Europe's exposure to Russia for energy and energy security. So European consumption is 55 BCF a day in 2021. Production is 20 BCF a day. That's their gap of what they're not doing themselves. They should have been producing more of that. 18 BCF a day was the exposure to Europe, 16 BCF a day via pipeline, 2 BCF a day LNG. They're still taking some of that LNG, by the way, but that's a massive gap and a massive hurdle. Their answer, so they're still taking some of this LNG uh, from Russia, um, we are financing, we are the biggest financers of this war by far. And the reason this is important to talk about is because there is a thing called war fatigue. And it's very uncomfortable for people to talk about, but it's a reality because when we're spending um, $47 billion on this war and the rest of Europe isn't spending anything, and the rest of Europe is going to China and saying, hey, if it comes to Taiwan, we're probably siding with China, this is really problematic in a long game um, because the stuff with Taiwan is increasing and um, sovereignty issues, you, you name it. But this war fatigue is a big deal because it's draining our ammunition, it's draining Europe's ammunition, um, it's draining the European economy, it's draining a bunch of stuff. And it would be really, you know, it would behoove China to probably lean into this because when when U.S. is weak, when Europe is weak, and when Europe doesn't want another war, and we've all drained from ammunitions, that's probably when you go do something. Um, so, but the money side is really big because on top of this, Ukraine says that for restructuring efforts, they need $700 billion when this war is over. $700 billion is a lot of money, and where's that money going to come from? And Europe isn't so far putting up the money. Um, that's Chinese trade with Russia. You can see that how much that increased in the run-up to this war. Um, that's, that's no coincidence. The, the trade increased well before the war. They were prepped for this. They've been talking. Um, this is well documented. Um, Putin has been in Chinese newspapers all throughout the course of 2021. Uh, 2022 rolls around. They put their, their big friendships, no limits agreement together. Macron, um, the leader of France, just went over to China. Um, Germany's leader just went over to China in December, right after they lifted the zero COVID Band-Aid and brought a bunch of CEOs with them. So Europe's doubling down on China. Uh, Macron is saying uh, basically on Taiwan that they need to be independent. They don't need to follow the US um, because their trade is so tight with China. And the trade is really tight. You can see this, this is trading goods with China, how much it's went up in 2022. Solar exports, solar panels from China to Europe increased by 122% over the course of 2022. This is their answer to energy security. We won't get it from Russia anymore. We'll just buy solar panels made from cheap labor, forced labor, um, from Uyghurs um, in internment camps. We'll just buy those from China, and we, will, um, that, and we have to replace those. So those might last 15 years. Those might last two years. They have to replace those. But that's their answer to energy security, is that they'll just buy a bunch of solar panels from China, and hopefully they don't have to worry about anything in the future. They will. And um, the cost to get that solar into their grid is really expensive. There's huge costs and intermittency reliability that goes with that, but that's a problem. Um, the Czech leader, he says it very clearly. He basically came out publicly and said um, the only country that benefits in this whole war with, with Ukraine is China because they're buying cheap coal, they're buying cheap oil, they're buying cheap grain, all from Russia. They're stockpiling this stuff. So they're, in a, they're a huge beneficiary. The China risks just abound. They're just up 
to, I mean, you cannot not understand China and think about geopolitics or oil. Um, they are, their big espionage law is being enforced even more and more. Bain, you know, the big company that does a lot of beautiful PowerPoints and um, their consulting firm, they just got raided um, in Shanghai by the Chinese police. Um, their Chinese, the ambassador in France actually came out and said that the sovereign countries of Europe, the Soviet countries, those mm, maybe aren't so sovereign and maybe they don't really have any standing. Um, that was walked back a little bit, but the fact that they're saying that is a really big deal. Um, GDP has come down. Obviously, oil demand came off today because of concerns about Chinese um, everything. And to bring this home, and I know I'm over, but this is really the, the end of the story, is that that's global CO2 emissions. Um, and this is why the China stuff matters. So global CO2 emissions, that's why we talk about the energy transition. That's why everybody's going net zero. That's the story. That's why we talk about the energy transition ESG. Is CO2 emissions are up. We want to reduce CO2 emissions. We can debate that any, uh, another time, but that's Chinese CO2 emissions. That's US CO2 emissions. That's India's and that's Europe's. So, you know, if you want to drop CO2 emissions, you got to be talking about China. It's not really convenient to do that because they're just going up. Um, but that's why we say, well, China will buy the wind and solar panels because they make it, but they're not reducing it. And they make those wind and solar panels that we buy from coal um, and from forced labor. So emission reductions, this is the, so they, this is energy emissions reduction. So again, that's the net zero. So we'll drop all of our energy consumption with oil and, and coal and natural gas, and we'll go to net zero. Everything will be fine. The economy won't tank or anything. Um, Oil demand, and this is so important when you're talking about net zero, is that oil demand, according to net zero, drops by 25 million barrels a day. Um, so by 2030, not by 2050, so by 2030, between now and 2030, oil demand has to drop by 25 million barrels a day. That's way more than we had during the COVID lockdowns. That's devastating to the economy. It, it won't happen, but it would crater the economy and it would put you all out of business. So it is a big deal. And it matters to me when people are harping and trumpeting and talking about net zero that they truly understand what they're actually saying. Because net zero from an oil demand standpoint is 75 million barrels a day of demand by, and we, we we consume 100 million barrels a day demand now. So it's very important to think about this in context um, and educate people because this does matter for stock price performance. This does matter for shareholders wanting to invest in companies. This does matter for long only portfolios. It matters a lot. And that story and that understanding that connection has to be told and explained. Um, so US, US and Chinese power generation by fuel type, again, this is where emissions come from. Our, our power is about 4,500 4,500 terawatt hours of power generation. That's our coal, that's our gas. We've been able to add renewables in Texas largely here because you have so much natural gas. Um, that's how it works. Just because you add a bunch of renewables doesn't mean they actually work. Um, they're, just, they're just there. This is China. They're over 8,500 terawatt hours, largely coal. They have renewables. Those are not all tied into the grid. The only reason they have them is because they tie them in with coal. And, sorry. Um, United Kingdom electricity power generation is declining. German power electricity is declining. They want to electrify everything. They want to get electric vehicles. And they want to plug them into the grid. You can't do that if your electricity generation is declining. I mean, you just can't do it. You have to actually electrify. So this, this is the opposite of what's happening. So if this is the track we're following, it's not the right track to follow on. And it's very serious because you're not producing anything. If you're not producing anything, you can't bring chips home. You can't make your semiconductors here in the US. You, cannot, um, you can't make anything because you're not going to be able, you're not going to make chips manufacturing off of wind and solar power. It's just not going to happen. Um, and you're not going to make ammunition off that either. And that's really serious because in Germany or in Europe, they actually are fighting for making ammunition. They're, they're actually fighting with a TikTok facility for um, who was housing data for power generation. The ammunition facility was sending ammunition to Ukraine, and they couldn't get power because they were fighting with power. That's India. So if you make stuff, your electricity generation is going up. Um, that's Vietnam. Again, make stuff, electricity goes up. That black is coal. That doesn't seem to be going down anytime soon. Um, that's the province of Xinjiang. This came out of China's 14th five-year plan their own 14 five-year plan. This is energy from the province of Xinjiang. This is largely where your Uyghurs and forced labor and all the bad stuff is happening. It's documented. I'm not blowing smoke. This is a really, really serious thing in terms of the internment of one to three million people. Um, this is historical too. You, they lost 55 million people in the Cultural Revolution and the Great Leap Forward. Um, so people are kind of dis disposable to, um, to the Chinese leadership. I don't mean that to Chinese people because there are a lot of great Chinese people. Um, but it, it's meaningful for energy production because they produce a lot of coal there. And lastly, China dominates the solar and battery manufacturing in the world. So everything that we think we're going to buy from wind to batteries to everything, it's, not all, it's almost all produced in China. But it, more importantly, 
every piece of it is processed. So copper, we need for the energy transition, but we actually just need it for everything. We need it for regular energy consumption. We need it for regular cars. We need it for electric cars. We need it for our phones. We need graphite. We need this stuff. The military needs graphite. The military needs copper. All this stuff is processed in China. Um, and that is a problem. And increasingly, it's processed in the province of Xinjiang. And the reason so is because it's really dirty. It's really environmentally intensive. Um, and you do it, you need a lot of heat and energy power when you do that with coal. Um, so if it sounds complex, it really is. And with that, I will close. Um, it, I mean, it is a thing, and it's sort of we're catching up to it now. But there's a couple things that I would so look at Saudi Aramco and look at what they're investing in. They're very bullish. They they see that I mean they're bullish because they know we're reducing our output. Um, they're they'll tout and lean into the energy transition because if everybody's leaning in the energy transition, that means they're not producing their own oil and gas, and that means that the last man standing is is Saudi Arabia, and they know that we're going to demand that oil. And increasingly, and you're already seeing it in Europe. Europe is going to Europe is going to the Middle East for their oil. Um, and their gas. So we're killing ourselves on the emissions standpoint. And I do think this is important to mention because we're working really hard to reduce our emissions. Great. But Europe is penalizing us and saying, we're not going to take your, your gas unless it's super clean. They're not, telling that to, they're not telling that to the Saudis. They're not telling that to the United Arab Emirates. They're not doing that at all. Everybody's flaring like crazy in Nigeria and everywhere else, but everybody buys that. So the people we, you know, we have to lead on this, um, but it, it won't necessarily help us in the future. The production point, you're right that all the basins, they've flatlined. Um, when you look at private equity investment and you look at like how many people, I mean, I know plenty of people that were trying to get assets in North Dakota, who were trying to get assets in Powder, who were trying to get assets in Eagleford for years, and they couldn't. Competition was pretty tight. So the, the interest in these basins has been high on the private side. All of those basins, um, and you have to be careful with that, the chicken and egg problem is all those basins were controlled by the major, by big, big publics who already held their acreage by production. So there is no incentive for them to go back out and, and I mean, to go back in. They're, they're focused on the Permian. However, that being said, why wouldn't they sell off some of it? Because all these privates I've known and PE guys w would love to buy a chunk of Hess's acreage, but Hess won't sell it. And why is that? Um, maybe they think they might have a future with it or they just want to hold on to it for something. So I know people say it's because there's not enough drillable locations, but it's also because the acreage is locked up and the drillable locations theory is a bit as the privates have expanded, um, they've expanded into the territory that people didn't think you would expand to before. So I'm not saying we haven't drilled up a ton, and yes, but the powder is not drilled up. The powder is just patchy and variable. I guess I should add, uh, there's less space available at current prices. Uh, if oil's 200, it's a whole No, world. and I don't think oil's ever going to 200. If it does, it's staying there for a second and dropping because the economy will crater, just like it did at 140 and it came down, as predicted. Um, but that doesn't, I mean, in the Balkan right now, you just have, there's no incentive, right? It's like people who were thinking we were going to refrack in 2014. And the incentive wasn't there because there was enough available locations. Um, there's probably more of an incentive in Colorado to actually refract because of the regulatory hurdles and everything. So I, I think that there's, if, if you were to push the industry and say, you need to produce more, and take away regulatory uncertainty and say it's wartime powers, like we want to go back to 13 million barrels a day or more, we're building export facilities, want you to do more? I would like people to respond to me and say, give me the story that they can't. And I think that, I think increasingly they would. The industry would push back and they would produce. So we've had a lot of artificial, I'm, I'm just a little, um, I think we're conflating a couple different things. And it can be decreased locations for sure, up spacing and everything. But it's also that um, public companies are not increasing output. 
Not because they can't. Part of that is that maybe they want to hold that flat. But they're increasing output by 3 to 5%. And they control the bulk of the production. That's, that's it. And that is pressure by the market. When do prices catch up with that? Prices are catching up with that. The prices are just telling you that demand in the world is not very good and that we are going to recession. It's not all demand driven. It's trading driven. But oil prices are telling you that we are headlong into recession. People don't want to believe it. The market's still going, you know, it's not going up today. But um, yeah, it, it, it's catching up. But that's a, we can, we can, we can debate this for a long time. It's a good, it's a very good question. Yeah? So I guess one is left for the completed wells and how it's lowered. Yep. To me, it's like a cyclical system here in the confirming where big majors own everything and then branches off to private. Yep. And then we're seeing right now back to like Trump still applying DOG, all these guys that were private. And so now they own more and they like this, right? And they have a ton of acres. Mm -hmm. Right. For the completion system. At some point, obviously next year, two years could be hell on the economy, but after that, something's gonna fold, break apart again, right? Or private come back in. Yep. Right, and it's a cyclical, I would say, to both your, like, it's, it's really evolving. And I think every time you think you got it, and you got it in your head, it's, it shifts. Because I can tell you, um, major private equity firms, big ones, huge ones, you know their names. I can't say them because it was a confidential thing, but I remember them being in a conference with them, like pre-COVID, and then saying, you know, there's no room left for, for two rig companies, one and two rig companies in the Permian. That day is done. The small private equity companies are done. Well, that morphed completely because lots of private equity money did move out. Um, stupid, no offense, but stupid private equity companies also hedged at $26 oil with zero logic behind that. I mean, absolutely zero, because either they don't know the oil and gas market or they're scared, they were scared shitless. And either way, they don't know oil and gas because it couldn't stay at 26, but they hedged there. And so you had private equity companies that sort of stayed in the game to try to get their money back out. But increasingly, especially here in Texas, you had a lot of mo private, private money come in. And that was not what the you know, the big private equity firms were expecting. So the private companies came in and saw opportunity as oil prices were increasing and were able to go back in. That wasn't expected, that wasn't predicted. No one, no one you know, in Wall, on Wall Street saw that. So I think that when, that's what I'm saying, when you push the industry, it always moves and ebbs and flows, just like any other industry. And so when prices, if prices are to stay, if they stay at 75, you will see consistent, resilient production, I think, in this country, um, more so than people think. And then, you know, what will happen if, if prices go to 80 or prices go to 85 or 95, um, you will see companies, you know, you will see increasingly private companies push it. That will put pressure on gas prices. It will keep gas prices low um, because you have so much associated gas. But, I mean, it's, a it's an ebbing and flowing and moving process that I, I think, you know, we have to have sustained $55 oil to really see something something flip, um, that would drop production, absolutely. Yep? So a lot to do with uh, OPEC announced cuts a few weeks ago, but OPEC's quotas were way higher than their actual production. So the quotes, were those off of their, or the reduction, was that off their quotes or off of their actual production? Because really, if it was a non-event, if, if that cut was off of their quotes. So um, they like to keep it, they like to keep you kind of, keep it murky um, intentionally. So they'll often, if you look at the OPEC data and you, so this was from the, this was from their November to December 2023, what they announced in November, um, the cut then. And then on top of that, w the, the recent cuts, they came out and said, and we have an additional 2 million barrels a day. Or if you read it initially, it said on that Sunday night, that Sunday afternoon when it came out, it read 500,000 barrels a day. And if you kept reading, then it says, oh, but would like to take that basically to five, two, 2 million barrels a day. So I thought the market response was a little quick. The market oil prices popped five bucks, but that may not materialize. I mean, Russia has to drop production. Saudi Arabia has to drop production. Probably the rest of the countries are not going to. So it was a baseline off of like, this was their uh, August required production. That's the voluntary adjustment. And then they said you're then basically, and they haven't even shifted. Their Saudi is still at 10.4 million barrels per day, which they went up incrementally. So they have not even hit their original agreement from November. Um, so it is a little bit up in the air, and it could be partly why oil prices are are sluggish. In addition to demand worries, um, is that you have too high a supply. And if, if Russia is truly producing 11, 
0.3 million barrels a day. That's a lot of production, um, especially for an ongoing war, especially for pending you know, demand issues and everything. So it's a lot. So no, they're not, that uh, it's all fluid is what I would tell you, is that technically it's based off those November numbers and they won't hit them. And the only people that will be working on it probably is Saudi and Russia. And that should tell you that there's some nuances going on there of what Russia is actually doing. Um, and how they're actually moving these barrels, and if they are, if they potentially are trying to sell more of those barrels to China. Yep. I have a two-part question. So there's a major gap between the perception of oil and gas industry and the reality of it, especially amongst the younger generation. Mm -hmm. So first off, what can be done to close that gap, get out more education around that, and what happens if we don't? Um, so more stuff like this, truly. I mean, I, I'm, I'm looking to actually start a, a complete uh, entity, a nonprofit entity on energy security. So I think that there has to be, this industry needs to start supporting this industry. This industry needs to start talking positively about this industry. And I don't mean blowing smoke. I mean, I, I've, I'm third generation oil and gas. You need to own your own mistakes and you need to do right, um, absolutely. But increasingly, we have a lot of folks in the industry not talking about oil and gas production. They're talking about all the stuff that they're doing for emissions and everything, which is great. But at the end of the day, you're still doing this stuff. And the problem is, if people don't know, I mean, the, the cool stuff, I mean, the technology, the nerdy stuff, the people that gets people excited, the people that gets engineers excited, you know, actually running assets and, and t tweaking this stuff. The educational side is, is vast. I mean, you, you can, there's an endless pillar of information for this industry. So I think education is key in just understanding that, firstly, that this industry is still around, that we produce and consume 100 million barrels a day, and we're going to for a long time. That's really hard, though, in the context of all the stuff you hear on the stock market and the newspapers and everything. It's really tricky. So education and talking to people and being honest about it is one. And I do think the industry has to be a huge part of that, of just a, the industry has to own it, for one, um, just for share price performance, if nothing else. And then two is that there has to be more efforts to really talk about energy security. Um, because if, the, if what you're saying, if this thesis of going down this path, if, if we're reducing output, it is the worst, worst thing for this economy, for, for our jobs, for our, for our consumers, for everything, and for our energy security and our global geopolitical leverage um, as the largest oil and gas producer in the world. That's huge. So I think that uh, these issues are all interrelated and complex, and those have to be increasingly brought forward of saying, you know, actually what we produce does matter in a context of a war with China. Um, not, I'm not saying we're going to war with China. I'm saying if, if, we, if you want to prevent one, keep producing as much natural gas as you, as you possibly can. That prevents wars. If, if Europe would have produced as much as they possibly could, they might not have had a war um, with Russia because Russia wouldn't have had that leverage. So this does matter. And the trouble is, is that the investment thesis, you know, the stock market and, the, um, and all the newspapers and everything are increasingly you know, talking about the energy transition. So educating on what is that energy transition, how does it actually work? Um, and you know, if it's based on wind and solar power, putting that into your grid, that's not a transition. That's just adding renewables into a grid grid that may or may not, I mean, create a lot of intermittency, which is going to cause us to have to use more natural gas. I'm not, that's just a, that's just a reality, because those aren't, when you're turning the lights on, um, you're not, you're going to need, if everybody's turning the lights on, that's what's going to happen. So that's why companies are betting on natural gas. And so explaining this to folks is hard, um, but I mean, relentlessly doing it and having people educate. Chris Wright with Liberty um, is one of those um, few public operator, few public companies that is willing to do that. But increasingly, folks have to be out there and be positive, you know, talking about what they're doing. And every, you know, this business is filled with incredible people who are incredibly passionate and love what they do um, and produce something and produce a commodity that's a high energy dense fuel. Um, and that's the reason why it's that's the reason why we haven't had an energy transition is because you can't replace the energy density and the BTU content of this stuff. We just that wind and solar just doesn't have it. Um, so that that message of reality, even though people may not like it, has to be there because at the end of the day people do want jobs and money and um, to feed themselves. And if everyone is switching out of this industry and it's so important to go to schools, I like I spend as much time as I can at universities and stuff talking to students um, because they you know they're at they're asking questions about CO two emissions and energy transition and jobs and they think you know you got engineers thinking they're all going to work in wind and solar and 
you know, that's not going to hire that much in the first place, even if we use all of it. But the problem is that's what they think is real. And that's actually not what's equating to reality for the next 10, 20, 30 years, um, if not longer. Um, and then add, if you have geopolitical volatility, that just gets worse, um, which it throws all of the, it throws everything in the energy transition completely out the window if we do have future, if we have continual future wars. Um, and CO2 emissions goes out the window as well. Um, so I think education is huge. And it's, I'm not saying we can solve it, but uh, it's better than not doing anything. Um, and we're not doing the right thing right now by not trying. And that's what this industry right now is not trying, is not trying to even tell the other story of we, ha we do have the moral high ground here and we have the energy and have the energy density and we're not even telling the story because we're afraid that people will get mad at us. They're already mad at us, so it doesn't really matter. So you're at a lot of the different universities. How receptive are the students that are at that point? Are they already, I don't want to necessarily use the word indoctrinated, but coming up into the high schools, about college age, how receptive are they to doing this? Um, well, a lot of, I mean, a lot of them are, if they're petroleum engineers, they're pretty receptive. Um, others are, I mean, it really depends. I will say that um, when you're armed with facts um, and, you know, you're a little bit on the, I mean, I'm not young, but I'm not super old either. Um, it helps a little bit to be armed with a lot of data and information and to be extremely passionate. And I'm passionate and I'm relentless. And I would say that, you know, that helps a ton. So I'm willing to engage in a talk with people who completely disagree with me, and that is fine. And I'm willing to change my mind. But that's, you know, getting out there and doing this. And I, the education plans I have, I mean, we, we need to be doing more of explaining how does this actually work. You know, you guys do a great job. I mean, you have a petroleum museum that's fantastic. That needs to be in every state. You know, we need exhibits of that type of stuff in every state that produces oil and gas. We need to be, like in the Marcellus, they can't build a pipeline, you know, because, and they have, you know, more natural gas than, you know, one of the biggest states in the entire world that would solve the world's gas problems by the Marcellus alone, probably. And we can't build a pipeline and we need to build increased LNG export facilities. So increasingly, yes, younger people we have to talk to. But increasingly, we also have to be talking to people who are putting money into this stuff, who are have board members um, who are conflicted between what is going on in the world. And, you know, that it's, it does matter to have uh, very savvy board members and very savvy executives who are planning for risk, you know, and understanding the bigger picture. Because what happened in 2020, and I can tell you how many phone calls I got from everyone, was how do we get into, you know, when Biden was elected and, every, and the tailwinds went toward energy transition was, how do we flip to energy transition? And these are service companies. These are drilling companies. These are, you name it, the companies. And I, I respect what they were trying to do, but they weren't necessarily making money at the core business that they were doing in the first place, let alone trying to dabble in batteries. Um, so you, that was just a, the reason that happened was because they had people telling them what they were reading and what they were seeing. And they were, you know, they just wanted to lean in. And that's not a lot of hedge fund managers. A lot of people on the money side are already pulling out of the energy transition. I mean, they're betting against it. Um, so big money is moving out. That's just not what you hear a lot. Um, and so that's, that gets really tricky as well. So I think it has to start, it's bottom up, but it's also top down. So every day in data business educating, but I think top down, um, I love, I, I tend to speak as much as I can, people that will allow me in, in boardrooms and with CEOs and executives of talking about this stuff in, um, you know, in a very maybe calmer fashion than I am right now, um, of explaining it because um, if for nothing else, for them to have a dialogue, a deeper dialogue and a conversation, and you know, you don't have to agree with me, but you have to have a different voice in the room. And that's why I brought up the industry group think in the beginning about the bullish oil narrative, because I can poke holes in that all day long. Doesn't mean I'm right. Means that as a business, you need to be poking holes in all day long too, because this is a boom and bust business. And everyone thinks we're just gonna be going like this for the races. And we're 72 at all oil and we were 83 a week ago. So you have to just be, we have to be really cognizant. We have to be planning for a business and we have to be talking more honestly about the regulatory environment and how business functions in that environment. And also talking positively. But I, I do think companies being more bullish on the market, um, you can't in your stock price say, okay, on the market you say, I'm bullish on oil prices, but, um, you know, but we're going to transition and we won't be here 30 years from now. It, it just doesn't make any sense. Thank you.